0: Can you turn in your Bibles to uh, the book of Romans, chapter 12? We'll be reading verses 1 to 9. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed... By the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. For I say, through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body... But all the members do not have the same function. So we, being many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having then gifts differing according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Or ministry, let us use it in our ministering. He who teaches in teaching, he who exhorts in exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Paul begins chapter 12 with a plea. I beseech you. Now to b- beseech is to ask earnestly for it's an appeal made concerning matters of utmost seriousness and the serious matter at hand concerned the unity of the church you see the church in first century rome as i've explained many times before was in danger of splitting into separate jewish and gentile factions And as a consequence, Paul wrote this wonderful letter appealing to them to not allow this to happen. He begins, I beseech you therefore, the therefore referring to all that he has written in the previous 11 chapters. And in those chapters, Paul has at length and in great depth reminded them of the gospel that unites them. He has explained that no one deserves salvation. Salvation is only possible on account of God's mercy. Whatever background a person comes from, be it Jewish or Gentile, everyone is in need of salvation, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And all are saved the same way, through faith in the finished work of Christ upon the cross, as he wrote, who was delivered up for our offences and was raised because of our justification. And salvation, therefore, is a free gift, bringing us into a right relationship with God. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. And in those previous chapters, is also each explained to each side that, 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 having received salvation, they still have problems. Some among the Gentiles clearly misunderstood the meaning of grace, seeing it as a license to continue in sin and even justifying this viewpoint by claiming their sinfulness serves to to emphasize the graciousness of God. Some from among those of Jewish background had begun not only to put themselves back under the law, but were also encouraging others to do so too. So Paul pointed out the futility of doing this, explaining that putting oneself back under the law reveals a fundamental misunderstanding of its purpose. And having reminded both sides of these things, he went on to explain to all of them what it means to walk in the Spirit. See, the Christian life involves moving forward, making ongoing progress in a life lived in active cooperation with the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. And after reminding them of the gospel that unites... Only after doing so does he deal with the issue that threatens to divide them. He wants them to hold together while he's actually uh, teaching them about this issue. And the issue that threatened to divide them was the growing belief among some of the Gentiles that Israel had been replaced as the people of God by the Gentile church. And as I've again previously explained in much more detail, this seems to have arisen and been confirmed by the fact that the church was becoming increasingly Gentile in character and compounded by the fact that Jews were far more resistant to the gospel than Gentiles. However, as Paul explained, the reason for this was due to the fact that God had hardened the Jews in order to provoke them to jealousy and that he has given them over to disobedience so that he might have mercy upon them. Indeed, Paul further explained that God has given everyone over to disobedience because salvation always has been and always will be according to his mercy. So Paul began chapter 12 with a plea. I beseech you in view of God's mercy. Now, in view of God's mercy is revealed to them in chapters 1 to 11. In view of that mercy, there should be a consequential action and that is to present themselves to God as a living sacrifice. If it's true for them, it's true for us too. Notice it says that we are to be a living sacrifice, not a dead one. This sacrifice therefore involves the complete surrender of your whole life into his service. This is further emphasised by the inclusion of the word holy, which simply means set apart for God. Because it's a living sacrifice, it means that it's active and it's ongoing. And it involves everything. Your heart, that is the very core of your being. It involves your inner desires, your passion. It involves your mind, what you think, what you choose to study. Not only that, it involves how you think, what you believe to be fundamentally true the foundation upon which all of your reasoning and decisions are made and how you understand the world we live in. It's what philosophers would call your presuppositions or worldview. And in chapter 6, Paul instructed them to present their members to God as instruments of righteousness. Presenting your members involves your eyes, what you choose to look at, your ears, what you choose to hear, who you listen to and what you listen to. It involves your hands, what you do, your feet, where you go. It also involves time, the time that God has given you and what you do with it. It involves your resources, your home, your finances, your possessions. Put simply, to present yourself as a living sacrifice means that you are in full-time Christian service. And Paul knew this by experience because he introduced himself to them right at the beginning of the letter as a bondservant of Jesus Christ. And this, he explains, is an acceptable sacrifice to God. The total giving of oneself in response to the receiving of God's mercy. Now to some this may seem a bit extreme, but to Paul it was only reasonable. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. It's reasonable. It's a logical response. That means it's well thought out. It's thoroughly considered. It is sensible. It's not an emotional whim because it makes you feel good, but, it's a, but rather it's an intelligent decision. This is your reasonable service, or as the NIV renders it, this is your spiritual act of worship. Worship is therefore a 24-7 lifelong commitment. Admittedly, we do use the term in a narrower sense, referring to time given over to prayer and praise, such as in Acts chapter 13, verse 2, when Luke is describing the calling of Paul and, and Saul. He writes... While we were worshipping and fasting, the Holy Spirit set aside Paul and Barnabas for the walk I have called them. However, that is only one sense of how the word worship is used in the Bible. Worship does not stop when we walk out the door on a Sunday. It continues all day, every day. Paul then goes on to make clear how this can be practically outworked. In verse 2, he gives two instructions... The first is a do not. The second is a do. See, it's become a modern fad, particularly in education, to always state instructions in the positive. However, it is often best to get a clear understanding by being told, not this, but that. Do not be conformed, but be transformed. Now, clearly, both these terms are actions that result in a change. In order to understand Paul's instruction, we need to clarify what these terms actually mean and how they differ. So what does it mean to conform? Well, peer pressure is an excellent excellent example of what it means to conform. To conform means to align oneself with a particular way of thinking under an external influence or pressure. It is to have one's thoughts and views influenced by others. Is going along with the crowd. So when Paul instructs, do not be conformed to this world, he is saying, do not allow the thoughts, opinions and philosophies of the world to shape how you think and feel, or indeed to determine your moral values. Pressure to conform to worldly standards is nothing new. But it does seem that today, particularly with the increasing intrusion of various forms of media into our lives, The pressures from external worldly influence is becoming much greater. People with moral values and opinions contrary to the politically correct norm are being marginalised from public life, often coming under spiteful personal attacks, being labelled as narrow-minded bigots. And people are increasingly being manipulated in their thinking to conform to the ideas, philosophies and moral standards of atheistic secular humanists through TV. And that's not just through news and current affairs, this actually is very prominent in soap operas. It happens through the radio and uh, more recently through internet social media networks. However, getting people to conform is usually counterproductive since it often results in inner frustration and rebellion. It can be a reason why some people are so against religion. For religion works by getting people to conform to externally imposed ideas and values. Now at the Mayfair I met a man who testified to this. His young son was interested in our model of Noah's Ark. And when I asked the man if he wanted to know anything, he politely made it clear that he did not want to talk about anything to do with religion. I asked him if there was a reason for this. And he explained that he'd been brought up in a strictly religious home. His parents were Jehovah's Witnesses. And throughout his childhood, he had felt under pressure to conform to their beliefs and values. He felt that they were being imposed upon him. So when he was old enough to leave home, he made the decision to reject those standards and expectations and to have nothing to do with anything that he perceived to be religion. And he apologised to me and said that he did not intend any offence. And I thanked him for his honesty. Now I didn't try to argue with him. Instead I invited him and his family to go into our tent and to enjoy the refreshments we were freely offering to people. You see, this man needed to see and experience the love of people who were being transformed by a loving Heavenly Father through the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. You see, Christianity is not about being conformed to an externally imposed standard, even if that standard is godly. Let me give you a biblical example. In Second Kings chapters 22 and 3, we read about the reign of Judah's last good king before the nation went into exile. And prior to the reign of the good king Josiah, Judah had descended into becoming a godless society characterised by injustice, immorality and idolatry. The word of God was banned from public life. Indeed, all the Bibles, or probably more accurately to put it, the books of the law, were lost and worship at the temple had ceased. This magnificent building constructed during the reign of Solomon was closed left unused and fell into a state of disrepair. Now Josiah was only eight years old when he became king and therefore too young to rule immediately. However, he did mercifully receive a godly upbringing so that when he was old enough to rule, he instituted reform which began with the restoration of the temple. And during that restoration, an old copy of the book of the law was found and brought to Josiah's attention upon reading it, Josiah realised the extent that the nation had fallen from God's standards. And in response, he humbled himself, tore his clothes and wept tears of mourning for the state of the nation. He sent his advisors to the prophetess Huldah to make inquiry of the Lord as to what he should do. And in response, he purged the nation of all idolatry and occult practices. He reintroduced the feast of Passover, which had been neglected for many years, and ruled the nation according to God's word. And as king, he had the authority and the power to enforce this. As a consequence, the standards of morality and justice were much improved, so much so that this is often referred to as a time of Josiah's revival. However, this was no revival, for you cannot change people's hearts by the rule of law. Governments ruling by instituting godly standards can restrict and restrain sin for a season but it will not lead to inner transformation. And the proof of this was clearly demonstrated by the fact that after Josiah's death, the nation very quickly descended back into the standards of immorality, injustice and idolatry into which they had previously lived, to their destruction. This is why Paul said, do not be conformed, but be transformed. See, to be transformed is to undergo a complete change from within, from within the very core of our being. And this is not a change that we can bring about ourselves. When Paul says, be transformed, he is telling us that the source of this change is outside of us, but that the change occurs within. And this is what happens with spiritual rebirth. This is what happens when we are born again, born of water and the Spirit. The source of this transformation is God. Now I've said this before on more than one occasion, that the prophet Ezekiel has actually made this plain to us in, uh, when he revealed the new covenant. And Ezekiel explains how God performs a kind of spiritual heart surgery upon us. He tells us that God will remove our old stony hearts and give us a new soft heart. He also sends the Holy Spirit to indwell and live in our hearts. And it's he that works in us and through us to form the righteous character of Christ in us. And it's only through God working in us that we can make sense of God's word. See, these things are spiritually discerned. Remember, it needed Jesus to open up the word to the two men walking on the road to Emmaus before they could understand the very scriptures they had read and studied for years. And it's only as the Holy Spirit works in us and through us that we can understand the scriptures too. And it is therefore in this way that we will be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Now I want to make one final point about the fact that Paul instructs them to be transformed. Be transformed means they must allow this to happen. It doesn't happen without their permission or active cooperation. And it only happens as we learn to walk in the Spirit. As we walk in the Spirit, God opens up His Word to us so that our minds may be renewed, so that we learn to think as He thinks. And we begin to live our lives according to godly wisdom. And Paul makes this clear when he goes on to state that its purpose is that we may prove what is that good and perfect will of God. And this is actually a further fulfilment of the new covenant promise we read in the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 31 verse 34 we read, No more shall every man teach his neighbour... And every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall know me from the least to the greatest of them, says the Lord. The new covenant promise is that we will know the Lord. We will have an experiential knowledge of him in our daily lives, in which we will know what pleases him and what displeases him. We will know when we please him and when we displease him. And we will know his will for our lives, both as individuals and as a body of believers. And this is not a privilege restricted to some intellectual elite. This is not a knowledge for the likes of C.S. Lewis only. It's available to all, from the least to the greatest. And as we walk in the Spirit, actively cooperating with him, He reveals God's word to us so that we might rightly and accurately discern what is and what is not of God. You see, to prove something means to weigh it and test it. In order to test whether a precious metal like gold or silver is genuine, its density needs to be measured. And that involves finding out how much it weighs and how much space it takes up and you divide its weight, or physics teachers will be looking at me in horror, it's mass. Okay, I know density is mass over volume. That's dividing how much it weighs by how much space it takes up. Thanks for that. (laughs) See, only when its density has actually been determined is a hallmark given to show that it's proven to be genuine. This reminds me of what Jesus taught his disciples to pray. He taught us to pray, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And this commits the one praying, firstly, to discern the will of God, and secondly, to do it. In verse three, Paul states, for I say through the grace given to me. See, the source of what he's about to say is from God. He's revealing what God has made known to him. Now this does not necessarily imply that it was a direct word given during the writing of the letter. It could equally mean what the Holy Spirit has revealed to him through the lessons he has learned over a period of time in which he has lived in the experience of a right relationship and a right standing before God. Knowledge of his will is not necessarily given all at once. Jesus taught his disciples to ask, seek and knock, or rather go on asking, go on seeking and go on knocking and he will go on giving us his spirit. In this way we receive an ongoing revelation of his will and purpose. The Christian life is an ongoing relationship in which he reveals to us what we need to know when we need to know it. Now this revelation that Paul is bringing to the church is for everyone. You see, at times in the letter, he has directed his comments to those of Jewish background, you who know the law. At other times, specifically to the Gentiles. For I am speaking to you Gentiles inasmuch as I am apostle to the Gentiles. But in chapter 12, he writes for the whole congregation. And he tells them not to think too highly of themselves. Now, I don't believe that he would have said this unless there were people in the church who were doing so. And in chapter 11, he had already rebuked some of the Gentiles for being arrogant, haughty and conceited. Now, thinking too highly of oneself can take two forms. The first is obvious. The arrogant and haughty will always boast about what they can do and what they have done. They will always push themselves forward into positions for which they have not been called and not been equipped to fulfil. The second is much less obvious, for it takes the form of false modesty. You see, when people say, I can't do this, I can't do that, I'm rubbish at everything, etc., who are they thinking more about? Themselves or God? So Paul exhorts them to think soberly. What does it mean to think soberly? Well, this is best understood by considering the opposite meaning the opposite of being sober is to be intoxicated or drunk and the consequential effect of being intoxicated is that reality becomes distorted what you see becomes blurred and people often drink to either soften the blow or to escape reality altogether so when people drink their inhibitions become diminished the normal safeguards that contain their emotions are lowered And emotions otherwise contained can be released in an outpouring of unwarranted jollity. Intoxication affects our vision. It diminishes our ability to see see reality. To be sober, therefore, is therefore the ability to clearly see things as they really are. The sober-minded are governed by truth. And only the sober-minded... And be reliable witnesses. As Tom has been pointing out, a reliable witness is someone who says and does what he has seen and heard. Now, imagine for a moment that you have been summoned to appear in court and called to give evidence regarding an incident you had witnessed one evening. And after giving evidence of what you saw under the questioning of the counsel for the prosecution, the defence barrister starts by asking you what you had been doing immediately prior to the event. I've oh, just left the pub. Had you been drinking, he inquires? Yes. And approximately how much would that have been? Three or four pints? Thank you, he says smugly, turning to the judge. No further questions, your honour. If we are not sober-minded, we cannot be credible witnesses. If what we see and hear is distorted, then what we say and do will be unreliable. To be sober-minded then is to have a clear and right view of reality. And the context Paul is speaking into is how they were to view themselves as in relation to the church. The sober-minded person will therefore have a realistic appreciation of the gifts that he has received and the measure of faith that God has given He or she will therefore not continually push themselves forward to take on roles they are not equipped for. Neither will they hide in the shadows when they should be in full view. They will not believe that everything depends on them. Neither will they hide behind the pretense that they're incapable of anything useful. The sober-minded person will understand that it's not about what they can or cannot do, but rather what God can do in them and through them. The sober-minded are those who are faithful, available, and teachable. And it's only when the Holy Spirit works in us to renew our minds that we begin to truly uh, comprehend what the church really is and understand our place in it. And this is what Paul goes on to explain in verse 4. Paul explains that we are members of a body and each one of us has a role to play and a function to perform. In order to perform that function, God has equipped us with many gifts. These gifts are given to individuals, not so much for their own edification, but for the benefit of all. Now, if I were to ask you if you have the gift of teaching, then if somebody in the body is clearly manifesting that gift, then the answer is yes. Whatever gift is given to anyone is given to us all. So if anyone is manifesting the gift of service, it means that we have all received it because we all benefit from it and we're all blessed by it. Now in verses 6 to 8, Paul lists some of the gifts that God has given to the church. The first thing I want to point out, that it's not a complete list. When compared to the lists of the gifts that Paul has written in letters to other churches, it is clear that they're not all mentioned. Secondly, Paul does not make any attempt to explain what each gift is. Now, I think there are two valid reasons for this. Firstly, because he assumes that they already know what he means and therefore no explanation is necessary. And the second is because a detailed discussion of the meaning of the spiritual gifts is not his purpose in this section. Now, his purpose is to emphasise the mutual dependence of each member of the body And therefore the importance of each member exercising those gifts diligently and responsibly. For this is how the body is intended to to function healthily and effectively. Now that doesn't mean I don't think that a study of what these gifts actually mean is not warranted. I think at the moment uh, that may be sort of uh, an apt uh, topic for a future discussion. But that's not the main point that Paul is making here. Notice that each member is to exercise their gifts according to the measure of faith they've been given. This implies that each member has not been given an equal measure. Some have been given more than others. Now this should not be a cause for envy because more is expecting from those given the greater measure for they bear a greater responsibility. And it's also entirely possible that the measure given to each can increase or decrease over time. Another very important aspect worthy of note is that the gifts are given to all members of the body and not just to one person or to the favoured few. This means that everyone bears some responsibility and everyone should be involved in the exercise of these gifts. Therefore, the situation in which 90% of the work being done by 10% of the people should never arise. And when this happens, it is a sign that the body is not healthy and not functioning as the Lord intended. Now, that does not mean that the work will be evenly distributed. This is impractical and unrealistic. But it is the Lord's will that each member should exercise their gifts in accordance to the measure of faith they have received. Now there are two reasons why this situations of most of the work being done by a uh, few of the people often arises in church. Firstly, it may be because there are people who still think too highly of themselves. They think that nothing is ever done properly unless they do it. And as a consequence, others who are willing to serve are never allowed to get a look in. An alternative could be that it may be because there are people who are in the body who are so concerned with their own affairs that they never consider the needs of the body, nor do they make themselves aware of the opportunities to serve and seem content to leave it to the faithful few. And sadly, the situation I've described is not uncommon in churches today. And it arises from a failure to fully realise the significance of belonging to the body. So we need to ask, why has the Lord made his church this way? Well, the reason is self-evident. You see, it's only in the context of each member being mutually dependent on each other that genuine loving relationships can form, grow and flourish. It is the reason why one person is not given all the gifts and that churches were never intended to function as one-man ministries. Have you ever tried to form a relationship with someone who is continually busy? Christianity is not a religion. It's not about rituals or conforming to an externally imposed set of values and rules. And Tom has been trying to get us to understand the Christian life in the context of the three abodes of God. They are in heaven, in the hearts of individual believers, and in and among the body of his people. Christianity, therefore, is relational. Its true expression is in the context of relationships, for God himself is a community community. He is triune. He is Father, Son and Holy Spirit. The Christian life involves the outworking of those loving relationships, a relationship with God and with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And this is why Paul goes on to talk about love in verse 9. He states that love must be without hypocrisy. It must be genuine, pure, without hidden agendas or mixed motives. And throughout the remainder of the chapter, he goes on to explain how genuine love is worked out in the life of the body. And God willing, we will look more deeply into these things next time. So far in my preparations, I have identified 12 significant aspects that we need to carefully consider in more depth. And it could be, could well be between now and then that uh, my attention will be drawn to a few more. But now I think it's appropriate to draw the the things I've mentioned so far today to, to to a conclusion. You see, I can't help but think back to that conversation I had with that young man and his family at the fair. His experience was all too common. Too many people have grown up with the idea that Christianity is a religion and that Christians are people who are trying to get them to conform to an externally imposed set of moral values. Now this does not just happen for people who have grown up in the homes of false religions. Sadly, it's it's also the case for many brought up in in the homes of evangelical Christians. Feeling that they have to conform leads to confusion, rebellion and rejection of faith when they become adults. And we need to communicate to them that this is not true Christianity. It is therefore vitally important that we understand what Paul is saying in this chapter. It's vitally important that we truly understand the difference between being conformed and being transformed. Unless we know the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit revealing God's word to us so that our minds are renewed and we are enabled to exercise godly wisdom and sober judgment, we will be unreliable witnesses, ill-equipped to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. We need to be able to communicate that Jesus died upon the cross and was raised to life on the third day so that our sin can be forgiven and so that we can be brought into right relationship with God. To be an effective and reliable witness, we need to know by experience what it means to walk in the Spirit, what it means to be adopted into God's family and cry from deep within, Abba, Father. We also need to know through experience what it means to live in true fellowship, forming mutually dependent loving relationships with our brothers and sisters in Christ and the importance of serving the body by exercising the gifts he has given us diligently, responsibly and joyfully. As Jesus said, what you did for the least of my brethren, you did it for me. May God bless you all. Amen.